Okay, praise the Lord. Here we go again with our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are in part 7 of this 12-part series, which has brought us uh, to Acts chapter 11. We're continuing from where we left off last time. And just in case we have anyone new that might be joining us, there are a variety of ways to participate in this Bible study. All of these are recorded, and there are also notes available for the entire study. You can access those at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. You can also listen live on Wednesday nights, either by telephone or online at mixlr.com and follow the broadcast name New Life Ministries. You can also access the recordings uh, there at mixlr.com as well as on our website. You can also subscribe to our New Life Ministries podcast and get the notes and recordings automatically as they are updated and added. Okay, here we go. We have come to page 118, if you are following in the outline notes. And this brings us to Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. And we're going to read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 30. And then we will probably spend our entire evening there. Acts 11, 19 to 30. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. When Barnabas went to Tarsus, I'm sorry, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Just a little bit of review from the previous verses here in Acts 11. After Peter took the gospel to the household of Cornelius, which officially marked the opening of the door to the Gentiles, or as we discussed, the beginning of what Paul calls the time of the Gentiles. Up until that time, the door of faith, the door of salvation, had been closed to the Gentiles. I, I hate to keep repeating this, but we really need to understand how profound, how significant this turn of events was. For centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years, the door of salvation was closed to everyone except the nation of Israel. You had to be a circumcised Jew to partake in God's grace and blessings. God, and only God, was the one who could open the door 
to the Gentiles. And as we saw in Ephesians 2, it was God who supernaturally broke down that wall of partition between Jew and Gentile and allowed the Gentiles who had been previously cut off from God, cut off from His promises, really just alienated from any hope of salvation, God broke down that wall and made them one in Christ. One new man called the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile together. This was a big deal. And we saw last time that it created quite a stir amongst the Jewish believers to the point that Peter had to appear before the apostles and some of the other leaders in Jerusalem and explain to them in a careful testimony what had happened in Caesarea with Cornelius and the other Gentiles there. Once they heard Peter's testimony, and remember he had eyewitnesses who had gone along with him, and they witnessed firsthand how these Gentiles received the gospel, God supernaturally baptized every one of them in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. When they heard all of that, they were finally satisfied. They praised God, saying, God has even granted Gentiles repentance unto life. So, the news has now spread far and wide that God is visiting the Gentiles, saving the Gentiles. They are able to receive the word of God and partake in this great salvation that began on the day of Pentecost. So, with all that as a background, we just read here in verse 19 and on, I want to reread a couple of these verses. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. That takes us all the way back to Acts 8, after Stephen was put to death. Saul began to persecute the Christians. They were scattered out of Jerusalem. They went into Judea. They went to Samaria. And they started to move even beyond that. And we were told there in Acts 8 that as they were scattered, they went preaching the word. This confirms that, and it takes us even further beyond now. They were scattered and went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Notice that. Telling the message only to Jews. They still believed that salvation was only for Jews. However, that prejudice, that mindset is slowly starting to break down as news gets around that Gentiles are also being saved, receiving the good news of the gospel, taking baptism, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Thus, verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. These are non-Jews. Began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So, some are able to go beyond that Jewish prejudice, and they are also, like Peter, now willing to take the good news to the Gentiles. And notice how the Lord, again, heartily confirms those who were willing to do that. Verse 21, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, this is a very significant portion of Scripture. And 
you're going to hear a lot about this place, Antioch. It was actually to become the center of gospel ministry to the Gentile world. It was to become a major church and a launch pad for many, many missionary efforts to the ends of the earth, fulfilling that final stage of Acts 1-8, where they would take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So, some who had been scattered from Jerusalem, they continued to preach only to Jews, but there were some who were willing to go beyond that, and God blessed their ministry greatly. Those who began to speak to Greeks, began to speak to Gentiles, were told that they were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that we heard the name Barnabas again, and Barnabas is going to be sent by the Jerusalem church, where he has been a leader up until this point, Barnabas is going to be sent to Antioch. You may recall, Barnabas is originally from Cyprus. And he would be a major player now in Antioch. So it says, again, in verses 20 and 21, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch. Antioch, by the way, is in Syria. Isn't it interesting how much we're hearing about Syria in the news now, how the devil has torn that country apart, and yet what a great base it was for gospel ministry in the first century in the early church. He, the men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. <clears throat> We've mentioned this several times already. <clears throat> Luke likes to give these little progress reports on how the gospel is advancing, how the church is growing, and... This is a blessing whenever you hear him write this. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. God is really starting to move in the Gentile world now. Not just the household of Cornelius, not just little pockets of people, but this is a massive revival. And that's actually the word that is used in the next verse in verse 22. We'll get to that momentarily. So, they're preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Many, many Gentiles are responding to the gospel. They're coming to Christ in droves. And the introduction of Christianity to the city of Antioch was extremely important, as I just mentioned. Not just because Antioch was to become a, a base of Gentile missionary outreach. But at this time, Antioch was the third uh, largest city in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. So this is a very important place for the gospel to be taken. And Notice again how willingly the people there are responding to the message. A large number, great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verses 22 to 24, when news of the revival, so Luke actually calls it a revival, when news of the revival in Antioch reached the church at Jerusalem. Now, they didn't have internet and cell phones and all this stuff, but news did travel, and this was big news. 
and the news made its way back to Jerusalem, and again, they were keenly interested in seeing now how the gospel is moving further and further out, and now there is a great Gentile revival underway in Antioch. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, we talk so much about Peter in the book of Acts, and we talk so much about Paul, we will be soon, Somehow Barnabas often gets left out, but I want to try to emphasize tonight, he was a major leader in the Jerusalem church at this time, and he would become the major leader in this new Antioch church. So, very carefully, the apostles and elders in Jerusalem decided to send Barnabas to Antioch. Remember, an apostle is a sent one. Barnabas, we will find, is to be called an apostle. He was sent out by the Jerusalem church. He would be sent out by the Antioch church on missions with the apostle Paul. So, when news of the revival reached the church, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. I like that. He saw something. What did he see? He saw the evidence of the grace of God. Now, grace is invisible. You can't see grace. You can't see the Holy Spirit. These are invisible entities but you can see the evidence of them. Jesus said the Holy Spirit like the wind. Well, you can't see the wind, but you can sure feel it, and you can sure see the evidence of the wind in the trees and in the other effects that it has. So, Barnabas saw grace was having an effect on these people. He saw evidence of the grace of God. Now, we're not told exactly what he saw, but typically, when grace begins to operate in people's lives, it produces joy, it produces freedom, it brings a new power, it brings life. So, he saw evidence of grace working in the people there in Antioch. So when he arrived and saw that evidence of grace, he was glad and encouraged them. You may recall from Acts 4 that Barnabas, who was actually a Levite, that's an interesting thing to ponder. Remember the Levites were the ones in the Old Testament set apart for ministry. In the New Testament, it doesn't matter whether you're a Levite or... Uh, What you are, uh, ministry in the New Testament is by the grace of God and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But, interestingly, we have a Levite who became an apostle. But remember, when Barnabas first joined the church in Jerusalem, they gave him a new name. They called him Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. Interesting. Because when he comes to Antioch, what's the first thing he does? He encouraged them. Apparently, this name was chosen very carefully to express the grace that they had seen in Barnabas's life. He had a great ministry of encouraging people, which is exactly what he does when he gets to Antioch. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And here's what it says about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and here's the results of his ministry. 
and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, a great number of people had already come to the Lord before he got there. So, this is on top of the revival that was already going on there. Many more are now being brought to the Lord through Barnabas' encouragement and his ministry. He saw grace working there. Obviously, he preached the gospel of grace and encouraged them all the more, and many more people were coming to the Lord. The Gentile church is now alive and well. It's on fire. It's in full-blown revival. And it's very interesting what happens next. It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus. This reminds me a little bit of Acts 8 and what happened with Philip. He's at the height of revival, and God takes him out into the desert to meet one Ethiopian. And Barnabas is obviously the leader of this new revived church that is being raised up in Antioch. He's the man. He's the man of power. And yet, in the middle of that revival, he leaves Antioch. And I think this is fascinating, and I want to take a little bit of time to develop this, because I want to try to show you what a great man Barnabas was. It says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, but I want to dig a little deeper into this and try to show you this was a man of real character. It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's very interesting. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul. You may recall, back in Acts 9, after Saul, soon to be known as Paul, after his conversion, this was such a dramatic change that the apostles, even the apostles in Jerusalem, thought this was a fraud. They thought it was a trick. They knew too much about this Saul of Tarsus. They weren't about to trust the news that had come to them that he was now saved and preaching the gospel. Barnabas had to personally accompany Saul, take him to the apostles in Jerusalem, and corroborate his testimony and convince the apostles there, this is the real deal. Saul is one of us now. And it was only because Barnabas was such a respected leader that he was able to convince the apostles in Jerusalem, okay, Saul's one of us. And they then received Saul into their fellowship. Interesting that again now, Barnabas is thinking about Saul. And so he leaves Antioch, goes to Tarsus, to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back with him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now, we're not specifically told here We might be able to glean some details from other portions of Scripture, but we're not told here what Saul was doing in Tarsus. But apparently, something stirred Barnabas' heart to go look for Saul. must have been the Holy Spirit. And I personally believe Barnabas felt in the Spirit that he needed Saul to be with him, helping him, in the founding of this great work in Antioch. They would both soon be referred to as apostles. Remember, it was always the apostles that founded churches in the book of Acts. Antioch is no exception to that rule. And here again, Barnabas seems to have this special 
affection, this special uh, bonding to Saul. And so he goes, looks for him, finds him, and brings him back to Antioch. And they would remain together in Antioch. We're told here that when he brought Saul back to Antioch, it was for a whole year that the two of them met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Their friendship, their alliance, of course, would last until their disagreement and separation in Acts 15, which we'll wait until we get there to discuss that. But Barnabas brings Saul back to Antioch. Now, I think it's important to, to kind of trace this through. We think a lot about Paul the Apostle because we now know he wrote over half of the New Testament and we know how God would mightily use him in the early church. Such was not the case yet with Saul. He was pretty much, uh, although his conversion was amazing, and yes, he had been preaching in the synagogues and sharing the gospel around, he was still pretty much a nobody. He was not well known. He certainly did not have the respect in Jerusalem that Barnabas had. And so Barnabas goes and essentially brings Saul out of obscurity into a place where he was now going to have a much more public ministry. And to me, this shows something very precious about Barnabas's character. He was a truly humble servant of Christ. And I've been around the block a few times. I've been doing ministry for 43 years, and I've seen the good, bad, and the ugly. And I've seen some really humble uh, servants of Christ, and I've seen some, to be honest with you, not so humble. They're a little bit more filled with themselves, a little bit more about their own agenda and advancement, and even to the point of often putting down and putting out others that might uh, be viewed as a threat or a competitor. None of that seems to be in the heart and mind of Barnabas. All he wants to do is go bring Saul to Antioch and encourage him. Remember, that's what his name means, son of encouragement. Encourage him to really start preaching, teaching, helping to build this church in Antioch. Now, eventually, Saul would eclipse Barnabas. He would become more prominent, more popular, better known than Barnabas, and Barnabas might have had second thoughts about all this. Maybe I better not bring Saul here, because if he's a better preacher than I am, he might eventually take my seat of power, and uh, he might become more popular than I am, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Barnabas never even gave a thought to all that. He was truly humble. And I hope you can see that as we're looking at the man, Barnabas. He brings Saul to Antioch, and during that year, both of them are ministering, teaching, uh, helping the church. But fast-forwarding a little bit, this is going to change from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas. And notice, I've given some notes here in the outline if you want to look them all up. There's an interesting progression in Acts 11 up to Acts 15, where Barnabas and Paul go their separate ways. 
But I want you to notice the order in which their names are mentioned. In Acts 11, in Acts 12, and in Acts 13, uh, in the early verses, it's always in this order, Barnabas and Saul. Suddenly, in Acts 13, the latter part of the chapter, and all the way up to Acts 15, the order reverses. It's always Paul and Barnabas. And in Acts 14, they referred to Paul as the chief speaker of the two of them. Paul, they recognized as the chief speaker. Obviously, by that time, he was the more gifted preacher, maybe more popular, uh, more prominent. I don't know exactly what the right words are, but little by little, (coughs) Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, is outshining Barnabas. And eventually, the ministry of Paul would totally eclipse that of Barnabas. But I think Barnabas may have even been aware that that was going to happen. Maybe he had discerned the calling on Saul's life, the great anointing on his life, the potential for his apostolic ministry, the gifts that were already being manifested in his life. We don't know all the reasons, but I think he saw something through the Holy Spirit that this man had a great future in the ministry. And that didn't hinder Barnabas from going and looking for him and bringing him right back to Antioch where he was working. And I'm sad to tell you this, but I've seen some pastors and leaders over the years that wouldn't do that. They'd leave Saul in Tarsus because they don't want any competition. They want to be the man of power for the hour. They want to be number one. That was not the case with Barnabas. He had no difficulty in esteeming Saul better than himself. Isn't that what the Bible says we should all be doing? Esteem others better than yourself? Well, that cuts against the grain, and our grain is called pride. It cuts right against our pride to esteem someone better than myself. What does that really mean? Well, the other guy's a better pastor than I am. He's a better teacher than I am. He's more gifted than I am. He has a greater anointing than I am. He's a better preacher than I am. That's hard to admit. Because pride wants me to at least secretly think, I'm the best. I'm number one. And how many ministries have been brought down because of that spirit of pride. But Barnabas, for me, is a breath of fresh air. He had no problem going and finding Saul, bringing him back to Antioch, and maybe he was even promoting Saul, giving him uh, more prominence in the ministry, putting him up to teach and preach more than he was. I don't know. But certainly, he wasn't worried about Saul taking his place or uh, competing with him or anything like that. You know, it's sad, but sometimes if we're not careful, we start to feel threatened by somebody around us who's more anointed, more gifted than we are. So what? The church needs all the anointing, all the gifts, all the teaching and preaching it can get. So step aside and let the better man come forward. Human pride never likes to play second fiddle. We always want to be number one. But that is exactly what needs to die if we want to see an ongoing revival in the church of Jesus Christ. 
I think Barnabas was a truly humble man. It says he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. And he was obviously a mature man of God. He had been in the faith for a number of years. God had had many opportunities to work on him and teach him how to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. So, this to me seems to be a beautiful manifestation of that humility in Barnabas's life. So he brought Saul to Antioch little by little. Saul is coming to the forefront. He's taking more and more of a prominent role in the ministry there, and that doesn't seem to bother Barnabas at all. You know, one example of how not to be is King Saul, not to confuse him <clears throat> with Saul of Tarsus, but King Saul in the Old Testament. And pride and jealousy worked in King Saul's life in such a way that it eventually destroyed him. And it reduces him to a pathetic character. And I want to read just one of many instances in, in his story that shows how that spirit of pride and jealousy was slowly eating him like a cancer and destroying him. 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 to 10. It says, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, you read that story in 1 Samuel 17. So David has killed Goliath, and now they're returning after that great victory. When the men were returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, remember, Saul wasn't about to go out and fight Goliath. He was afraid, just like all the other men in his army. It was David, and only David, who had the courage to go out there and face him. So... The men are returning home after David had killed Goliath. The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. This was a happy day. They're celebrating. Philistines have been defeated. The giant has been brought down. Everybody should be celebrating. But this is not a happy day for King Saul. Here's why. The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. <clears throat> they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. This is a scary, scary scripture. And I want every one of us to take a close look at what's really happening here. You see, Saul refused to esteem others better than himself. <clears throat> He esteemed himself better than others. And so, this galled him that anybody, anybody, would be better than him. And that's what pride does. We've got to be number one, or we're never going to be happy. Saul could not rejoice in the fact that, alright, 
He's being attributed with slaying thousands. That's pretty good. David, tens of thousands. Why not rejoice in David's success, which blessed the whole nation? It brought the whole nation victory and joy, freedom. Goliath is dead. The Philistines have been defeated. Should have brought him great joy, but he could not enjoy it because of his pride. He could not esteem David better than himself. Now, the really sad part of the story is God was about to come along and say, David is better than you, Saul. He's better than you. I have found someone better than you, and he's going to replace you. Would have been far better if Saul had humbled himself and said, Wow! David is a great man of God. Let's rejoice. He has slain tens of thousands. Let's esteem him better than Saul the king. But he couldn't do that. Saul was angry, and it galled him that they had credited David with tens of thousands and me with only thousands. Notice verse 9, Saul kept a jealous eye on David from that day on. Jealousy started to eat him up like worms, and it gets worse. An evil spirit comes upon him. He opened the door for demonic oppression and influence in his life because of pride and because of jealousy. I would maintain that Barnabas did not have this spirit. Barnabas, because of his spiritual maturity and humility, had come to a place where he could rejoice in the gifts that others around him possessed. And <clears throat> if it meant his name being second in the list, so be it. That was of no concern to him. He was quite willing to bring Saul to Antioch if it meant blessing the church. And that should be our mindset. If we're the song leader in the church and God brings along somebody that's more gifted, more anointed, sings better than we, let's step aside let them take over the worship ministry. Why? It's going to bring greater blessing and benefit for the whole church. And we'll get a personal victory by learning how to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You know, it's hard. I know it is. But God help us to learn how to rejoice when others around us have greater capacities, more anointing, more giftedness, larger opportunities, whatever. Let's rejoice in the blessings of others and not go down this road that Saul, king of Israel, went down, anger, bitterness, and jealousy. And then, finally, an evil spirit starts to take over his life. God, help us to rejoice when others have greater capacities, larger opportunities, and they can do more good than we can do. Let's rejoice in it. Let's not feel threatened or feel like we have to compete with that person, or try to put that person down, or put them out, or get rid of them, that, that's not right. That's not going to help the church to grow. <clears throat> Barnabas and Saul remained in Antioch for one full year, teaching, preaching, helping the church. And no doubt, it brought great blessing to the church. The church kept growing, 
It kept getting stronger and stronger. And we're going to see when we come to Acts 13. This church was a major center of Christian ministry. They had prophets, teachers, apostles coming forth from that place. It was a blessed church. And I believe, in large part, it was because Barnabas helped found this church on the right spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of true humility. All right, on to verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That's the first time, believe it or not, you find the term Christian in the Bible. First time it's used in the New Testament. And they were never called Christians in Jerusalem. They were never called Christians in Samaria. They were first called Christians in Antioch. And there's some debate on why this happened. Whether this name, Christian, was adopted by the believers themselves, or it seems more likely it was a name invented by the enemies and it was used to disparage them. It was really a, a name originally used as kind of a, a, a title of shame or reproach. Oh, those Christians. So, it's an apt name. It's very appropriate. Because Christian simply means belonging to Christ, a follower of Christ. Remember, the, the term Christ literally means anointed. So, to be called a Christian means they are Christ's anointed ones. They have the same anointing he had. So, it, although it may have been used as a term of reproach, it's actually a beautiful name and a very honoring title to be given to a person. Oh, you're a Christian. You belong to Christ. You're a follower of Christ. You're anointed just like Jesus was anointed. The term Christian is only found two other places in the New Testament. It's found one other time in Acts 26 and once in 1 Peter chapter 4. So only three times in the entire New Testament is the term Christian used to refer to to a follower of Christ. Far more do we find terms like disciples, or the way, or just believers, or the church. But they were first called Christians here in Antioch. Okay, one last portion, and this is where we're going to close it out tonight. Verses 27 to 30 uh, it refers to prophets. Let's read this again, 27 to 30. During this time, some prophets, not just one, plural, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Now, We've talked a little bit about this, and we may even come back to this again later on, but let's say it again. Those who received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, many of them prophesied, and one of the gifts or manifestations of the Spirit that Paul would later list in his letter to the Corinthians is prophecy. Not necessarily all who prophesy are prophets. Prophet is a very important ministry office. It's listed in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some 
to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Those are distinct ministry offices in the church, and apostles and prophets were often listed together. So this is not somebody who's just prophesying. He was already known as one of some other prophets from the Jerusalem church. And his name is given, Agabus, and he stands up, and through the Spirit, he makes a very specific prediction. That's what prophets do. Prophets often make predictions. They predict events that are going to happen in the future. Through the Spirit, he predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. I especially like the next two words in the text. This happened. This happened. Because you see, even in the Old Testament, God established that a true prophet does several things. His predictions come to pass. And secondly, he always leads people to the Lord, not away from them. So, a false prophet may do one or both of those things in the reverse. Either he makes predictions and they don't come to pass, or he might even make predictions and they come to pass, but then he leads the people astray. He leads them away from the Lord. This prophet made a prediction, and it came to pass. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So, because they recognized Agabus as a true prophet, they immediately responded to his prediction, and verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. They took up a collection and sent the money back with Barnabas and Saul to help prepare them for this coming famine. Fascinating how God used the ministry of the prophet to predict this, how the people believed the prophet and responded accordingly <coughs> by taking up this collection, taking up this offering. They haven't started having a famine yet. Some of them might have thought, eh, I don't know about this prediction. I'm going to wait and see if any famine comes, and then I'll donate to the cause. Would have been too late then. They responded to the prophet, and they took up this collection, and verse 30 Notice already how these two men are working together. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So, the money that has been raised to help the people in Judea, Barnabas and Saul, are the ones chosen by the Antioch church now to be sent on this mission to Jerusalem, delivering this aid. Notice it's specific. They delivered the aid to the elders in Judea. So, although Antioch was becoming the center of the Gentile church, Notice they still remained in close fellowship with Jerusalem and with the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. So they had continual fellowship back and forth. People going from Jerusalem to Antioch, people going from Antioch to Jerusalem. This, interestingly, <clears throat> is the very first time prophets are mentioned in the church. Very first time a prophet 
is pointed out in the book of Acts, although, remember on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and explained what was happening, he said that part of Joel's prophecy was, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they will prophesy. Okay? New Testament prophets, as I mentioned, do more than just prophesy. It's a ministry office, and they preach, they exhort, they explain, they work closely with apostles, and Ephesians 2 tells us that the apostles and prophets both are integral parts of forming the foundation of the church. So, we'll see more. I've given you some references in the notes, if you're following. We'll see a number of references in coming books, in coming chapters, sorry, of Acts, of those who are listed as prophets. We'll actually meet Agabus again in Acts 21, when he again makes a prediction. He gives a prediction to Paul that he's going to be imprisoned. And his prediction did come to pass. And despite the pleadings and the warnings, Paul went ahead knowing he was going to be imprisoned. So, a lot happened here. The Antioch church is in revival. It's growing. And it is really being established now as the center of Gentile ministry. And we'll see when we come back to Antioch in chapter 13 that it's really the base from which all of their missionary efforts would be launched. The first one, of course, being Barnabas and Saul as they head out on the first true missionary outreach or missionary journey into the Gentile world. So, we'll hear more about Antioch. We'll hear a lot more about Barnabas and Saul, or Paul and Barnabas. And as we close tonight, let's just remember the man Barnabas, son of encouragement, He was a great leader in Jerusalem. They obviously revered and respected him. That's why they sent him to Antioch, kind of like the way uh, the Jerusalem church sent Peter and John to Samaria when they heard about the revival there. They've sent Barnabas now to Antioch. He becomes a major figure in the work there in Antioch. He goes finds Saul, brings him back to Antioch with him, and the two of them begin to minister to the church side by side for the next year until such a time that God would call them forth as apostles to leave Antioch and go further beyond with the gospel. We'll have to wait till we get to chapter 13 to see more about that. Next time, we'll move on to Acts 12, where we shift gears again, and our attention turns back, for the final time, to the Apostle Peter. So Peter comes front and center again in chapter 12, and then from 13 on, we'll be seeing more and more of Barnabas and Saul. Let's close in prayer for tonight. Father, how rich your word is. Lord, we can just dig deeper and deeper, and your spirit unfolds and reveals little secrets to us. And Lord, how blessed we've been tonight, digging into your word and seeing things that maybe we've not seen before, that the character of some of these leaders in the early church how they were truly humble, 
how they had learned to esteem others better than themselves, and they were not uh, taken captive by spirits of pride and jealousy and such things, but they were truly humble, esteeming others, lifting up others, rejoicing in the success and the ministry of others around them. And no doubt that's why the church was growing by leaps and bounds. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the founding of this church in Antioch. And Lord, as we will return to Antioch further along in the book of Acts, we will begin to understand just what a great work your Holy Spirit began to do with these Gentile believers, raising up prophets, teachers, and apostles from their very midst. And God, we pray that in these last days, you will raise up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Raise up real elders to care for your church. Raise up true pastors with a shepherd's heart to care for your people. Raise up humble servant leaders to care for your people. And yes, Lord, we pray that many will come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ in these last days. That we might also be able to write, as Luke wrote, <clears throat> that a great number of people, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. God, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would seal it in our hearts. Let it continue to be in our hearts and minds as we meditate upon it. Bless each and every one that's with us tonight. Keep each one under the precious blood of Jesus. Keep us by the power of your Holy Spirit, by whom we 